Coming up next, a special encore power of words on President Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address, our Alan Shartog. We'll speak to renowned Lincoln historian Harold Holzer about the speech, and Academy Award-winning actor F. Murray Abraham will deliver the speech. It's up next, a special April 2015 encore airing of Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address. Words are powerful. They cause fear, confusion, and anger, or they can create shared understanding. But when words are delivered by a powerful political leader, their impact can inspire us to great action. And it is to those words that we turn now, in the power of words. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. This is the meaning of our liberty and our creed, why men and women and children of every race and every faith can join in celebration across this magnificent mall, and why a man whose father less than 60 years ago might not have been served at a local restaurant, can now stand before you to take a most sacred oath. Hi, this is Alan Shartok. Welcome to a very special Power of Words, our series of programs that follows American history through some of the most memorable and inspiring political speeches of our time. Our series continues today with President Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address delivered on March 4th, 1865. I'm honored to introduce two distinguished guests who will be joining us today. First, here with us to discuss the speech and the history surrounding it is renowned historian and author Harold Holzer. Harold Holzer is the chairman of the Abraham Lincoln Bicentennial Foundation, the official successor organization of the U.S. Abraham Lincoln Bicentennial Commission, which he co-chaired with Senator Dick Durbin and Representative Ray LaHood for nine years, appointed by President Bill Clinton. Holzer is the author, co-author, or editor of 41 books on Lincoln and the Civil War era. Among them are The Lincoln Image, The Confederate Image, The Lincoln-Douglas Debates, Lincoln as I Knew Him, Dear Mr. Lincoln, Letters to the President, Mine Eyes Have Seen the Glory, The Civil War in Art, The Lincoln Family Album, Lincoln on Democracy, co-edited with Mario Cuomo and published in four languages, and Lincoln at Cooper Union, the speech that made Abraham Lincoln president, which won a second-place Lincoln Prize. Holzer's most recent works include Lincoln President-Elect, Abraham Lincoln and the Great Succession Winter, 1860-1861, which won the Barondas Lincoln Award and the Award of Achievement of the Lincoln Group of New York, the New York Times Complete Civil War, co-edited with Craig L. Simmons, Lincoln on War, a collection of letters, speeches, and comments, Hearts Touched by Fire, the best of battles and leaders of the Civil War, and Father Abraham Lincoln and his sons. In 2008, Holzer was awarded the National Humanities Medal by the President of the United States. He's also won research, writing, and lifetime achievement awards from the Illinois State Historical Society, the Manuscript Society, the Victorian Society, the Civil War Roundtables of New York and Chicago, and the Lincoln Groups of New York, Peekskill, and Washington, as well as honorary degrees from six colleges. 
In addition to his writing, Holzer lectures throughout the nation. One of his programs, Lincoln Seen and Heard with actor Sam Waterston, has been staged and broadcast from such venues as the White House, the George H.W. Bush Presidential Library, the Clinton Presidential Library, the Library of Congress, and Ford's Theater. Holzer also appears frequently on C-SPAN and the History Channel and served as an on-air commentator for such Lincoln Bicentennial TV specials as Looking for Lincoln and Stealing Lincoln's Body and on PBS, National Geographic Network, NBC, and the BBC. A former journalist and political and governmental press secretary for both Congresswoman Bella Abzug and Governor Mario Cuomo, Holzer has served as an executive at the Metropolitan Museum of Art since 1992. He is now senior vice president for external affairs, responsible for communications, marketing, government affairs, visitor services, admissions, internal communications, and multicultural audience development. He and his wife, Edith, who live in Rye, New York, have two grown daughters and a grandson. Welcome, Harold Holzer. Boy, are you distinguished. I cannot imagine how much I've just read. <laughs> I'm totally exhausted already. Thank you for this opportunity. I guess we've used up all our time. <laughs> Great to talk to you again, Alan. We are equally honored to have with us Academy Award-winning actor F. Murray Abraham, who is recorded and who will deliver Lincoln's second inaugural address for us later in the program. Known for his Academy Award-winning role as Salieri in the movie Amadeus, Abraham has appeared in numerous films over a storied career, including All the President's Men, Scarface, Serpico, The Bonfire of the Vanities, The Name of the Rose, Finding Forrester, and much more. He has also appeared on television, including The Good Wife, Law and Order, Criminal Intent, Saving Grace, Bored to Death, and much more. Abraham has countless theater credits as well, and has performed on Broadway. He received a Distinguished Obie Award in 1984 for Best Performance as Uncle Vanya, and another in 2011 for Sustained Excellence of Performance in The Merchant of Venice. Now that we've introduced our guests for the program, we turn to author and historian Harold Holzer. Harold, please set the scene surrounding Lincoln's second inaugural address. Well, Lincoln, of course, had been reelected to the presidency in November. And in those days, uh, the interregnum was not just you know, six weeks, it was four months. So in the time between the election and the inauguration, Union armies were marching inexorably towards success. Confederate forces were dwindling. They were abandoning the fight. They were being outnumbered and outmaneuvered, sort of starved out of existence. So by the time March comes around, the South is all but whipped. Secession is going to be reversed. Everyone knows that. The Union is going to prevail. The only questions remaining is how soon it will come. Lincoln could not have known it, but it would be about another five weeks before the war, in fact, finally ended with Lee's surrender to Grant. But most of the people who gathered on that cloudy March 4th were feeling, you know, in a sort of a triumphalist mood. They had weathered the storm. They were there to celebrate and to hear what they expected would be a sort of chest-thumping declaration of imminent victory. They would be rather surprised, I think, by what they heard. Was Lincoln's re-election ever in doubt? Lincoln's re-election was definitely in doubt. It was so much in doubt that at the beginning or in the middle of the campaign, Lincoln asked his cabinet officers to sign a pledge that they would cooperate with the new administration and help execute the laws as long as they were holding office. He actually asked them to sign it without seeing it. He took these elaborate pains to write this memo and then seal it, and then asked, demanded that they sign it without knowing what they were signing. 
which is a totally bizarre, inexplicable event, but Lincoln was a sometimes a strange operator when it came to politics. Actually, until September, and the conventions were held in June, so until September, Lincoln was pretty certain he would lose. His own Republican national chairman, who was the editor of the New York Times, by the way, imagine that happening today, mm. told him he was going to lose, worried that he was going to drag down Congress with him. And then in September, uh, Sherman took Atlanta, and the whole equation changed. It was such a huge victory, coupled with news that a few months earlier, a Union ship, the USS Kearsarge, had, in a sort of a mano-a-mano duel, sunk the Confederate privateer, the Alabama, which had been seizing Union shipping for the last year or so. It had sunk it in Cherbourg, France, so the news took a while to get here. That got to the United States around the same time as the news of Atlanta. It changed everything. And uh, Lincoln, on November's election day, won really in very convincing fashion with 56% or so of the vote. So he wins convincingly. It's expected that it's going to be a chest thumper, but it turns out to be anything but. It turns out to be anything but. It turns out to be probably the most extraordinary, you know, performance of national contrition that has ever been played out on a public stage in the political history of the United States. Lincoln takes to the stage. In those days, the inaugural comes before the address comes before the swearing in. So they're all assembled on this cloudy day. Lincoln looks over this vast audience that has been estimated at, you know, 30 or 40,000 people. Also an integrated audience, which had never really been seen before in Washington. Emancipation has been declared. Uh, Washington, D.C. emancipation had occurred since the last inauguration as well. So there's a big free black community and also African-American soldiers on furlough who are filling the plaza of the Capitol for this event. And as Lincoln begins his address, by the way, the sun breaks through, which many people in the crowd, uh, mm. including journalists and Lincoln himself, note, you know, it's sort of an augury of good times. And then Lincoln proceeds in just, you know, 750 words to take responsibility for the war, not blame it on the South, but to say that it was a sin shared by the entire country, that slavery had been allowed to exist for as long as it as it had that all men had been uh, willing to ask God's blessing in wringing the sweat from other men's brows. And it climaxes, really, in a sentence in which he says that if God wills that the war continue until every drop of blood drawn with a lash is repaid by one drawn with a sword, and then he quotes scripture to say, as was said 3,000 years ago, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. In other words, we deserve everything we've gotten, all the losses, the 600,000 dead. It was our fault. We defied God. We defied nature. And then after he gives that shocker, after he basically tells people that God wasn't on one side or the other, he was on no one's side because slavery had festered for so long, then he ends with that extraordinary and justly famous peroration that begins with malice toward none, with charity for all. So he beats them down, and then he lifts them up. And then it's over, and in the sunshine, he takes the oath. And I think the audience was probably stunned by it. Well, you are the supreme, if I may say so, Lincoln scholar of our times and of all times. So your mind has to be closely attuned to his. So what was he thinking? You know, I think he's thinking of the post-war period. 
I think he's thinking of what he then, the phrase he coined, reconstruction, and that we come to know as reconstruction, which was a not a happy period and not a terribly successful period in managing both sectional and racial reconciliation because they were left to be at odds for so long. I think he's thinking that triumphalism is exactly what he doesn't want to be the reigning mood in the North, that if you ask everyone to share the guilt for what happened, you can start on the first square of the chessboard and rebuild a country according to this, as he says, to binding up the nation's wounds and care for him who have shall borne the battle. What a beautifully phrased piece of writing that is. Equal sacrifice results in charity for all. He didn't say charity for all in the North. He talked about every widow and every orphan creating a, a lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. So he's looking to the future. He's looking to reconciliation. And he's looking for a shared sense that the entire nation had sinned. Harold Holzer, how was this taken in the South? I think it was taken better than his first inaugural. I mean, both of his inaugurals, interestingly enough, are sort of conciliatory. The first inaugural, which started out as being a rather uh, sort of a line-in-the-sand document, was successively toned down over a series of drafts until it basically was, you know, an olive branch to the seceding states asking them to come back. This one was seen as that, uh, as the speech of a man who had no malice in his heart. And I think uh, for all his unpopularity, and we have to remember that even though Lincoln won 56% of the vote on election day, that's just the North. He won fewer votes in our own state, Alan, than he had in 1860. He only got about 51, barely 51% in his reelection. Our cities had been the scenes of draft riots. It had not been an easy time for New York State. A lot of sacrifice by the state in terms of treasure and materiel and men. So, you know, the national mood is not happy, and he, he sort of acknowledges that, and I think it was received pretty well. However, that said, reactions to Lincoln's addresses always came along strictly party lines, and this was really no great exception. That is, the newspapers of the day were specifically aligned with one paper or the other, the newspapers of the day were specifically aligned with one political party or the other, and so the response came along these strict partisan lines. The Republican press thought it was a brilliant speech, and the Democratic press thought it was gibberish. But that was par for the course. They said the same thing about the Gettysburg Address, after all. So he appeals, you know, to his reference is to the holy, to God. And yet the defense of slavery always referred to the Bible and the fact that obviously people were keeping slaves. Did he have to reconcile it or was it, or was it not necessary? I think he moved. He had long before moved beyond that. And the biblical passage he quotes to shock people into alertness on this subject is, woe unto the world because of, of offenses. You know, he is clear that in his view, the denial of liberty and opportunity is an offense to God. Now, it may seem strange that a president would align himself so directly with the Lord's wish, but this is something he had been searching for intellectually and spiritually for a couple of years. People ask me often if that means that Lincoln grew in his faith over time. I think that the casualty numbers were just so fearful. I don't think he had much choice but to hope and pray that there was a divinity at work and that he wasn't the greatest sinner in the history of the world, that he wasn't the one who was responsible for all of this, all of this mayhem. I think Lincoln believed in what he said deeply. And I think if you ask Lincoln 
you know, a day later, what was the greatest speech you've ever made? This would have been the speech, not the Gettysburg Address. He believed in this speech. He believed in it so much that when an old Albany hand, Thurlow Weed, wrote a letter to Lincoln about something completely different. This is one of the oddest exchanges of correspondence in Lincoln's uh, history. Weed wrote him a letter to say he, you know, he liked the statement he made accepting the nomination. And Lincoln writes back to him. This is just a week after the address. And he says, um, thank you for complimenting me on my inaugural speech. I expect it to wear as well, perhaps better than anything I have produced. And Lincoln goes on to talk about his creative effort. The odd thing is that Weed had never mentioned it. It must have been on his chest that it may not have worked as well as he hoped. In fact, a key to how it was received is Lincoln saying he believed it was not immediately popular, he said, because men don't like being shown that there's a difference between their purpose and the Almighty's purpose. Wasn't that also true of the reaction to the Gettysburg Address? You know, the, the Gettysburg Address was sort of brushed off for other reasons, and, I, and I, it's hard to compare the Gettysburg Address and the inaugural for one major reason. Lincoln gave the inaugural address on the center stage of America. I mean, this moment is the great moment for a president. He is taking his second inaugural, the first president since Andrew Jackson to be reelected and sworn in a second time in basically the center of our world in 1865, the steps of the Capitol in Washington, D.C., with every eye focused on him, every journalist of note in the audience, every dignitary in the audience, and 30 or 40,000 people in the crowd below, the Supreme Court there, the cabinet, his family. So this was a moment that was a supreme moment, and it was a matter of his rising to the occasion, and that was the challenge. At Gettysburg, his appearance was, from the beginning, something of an afterthought. He was not the main orator. That distinction fell to a Massachusetts politician and a public speaker of great note named Edward Everett, who spoke for two hours. Lincoln spoke for two minutes. And if he didn't make a great impact there, it was because people were so exhausted by Everett that they had barely regained consciousness in time for Lincoln, who was on and off stage so quickly that even the official photographer there did not get the opportunity to take a picture. So that speech increased in reputation as the years went by, where the inaugural was the cause of immediate analysis and a lot of analysis. You mentioned before that the theme of the speech was reconciliation, humility. There are those who criticized Lincoln for being too soft on the South, said we wouldn't have the modern-day civil rights problems that we have had Lincoln really come down with a sort of Damocles. Well, that is, of course, sort of counterfactual because we don't know exactly how he would have have ruled the roost had he survived past April 15th. We do know that he said in his final speech, five weeks after the inaugural, that he wanted the nation to take up the idea of black suffrage, especially, he said, for those who have fought in our ranks or the very intelligent, which sounds like a, you know, a means test and sounds pretty restrictive, but in fact marked the first time that any American president had ever talked about black voting rights anywhere. And one of the people in the audience for that last speech was John Wilkes Booth. By the way, he Booth also heard the second inaugural. We can get to that in a second, which is sort of surprising. But Booth heard that final speech. He was sort of trailing Lincoln. He was stalking Lincoln. And he turned to someone who was standing next to him in the crowd and said, did you hear that? That means Negro equality. And he didn't use the word Negro, needless to say. Mm -hmm. That's the last speech he'll ever make. So in effect, you could conclude... 
I think with good with good uh, cause that Lincoln gave his life for a sort of radical view of Reconstruction that including the that included the right of blacks to vote. I think he would have been much tougher than uh, than people think, and I think he would have couched it with the velvet glove of a of a very smart political operator to make black voting rights more palatable and maybe spare us the 1960s with what he might have done in the 1860s. Do you think that he chose wisely with Johnson as his vice president? You know, he left no paper trail and no fingerprints about the selection of Andrew Johnson. I believe that he had a hand in it. I think it made political sense for him. In 1860, he was the quintessential Westerner, so they needed a quintessential Easterner to balance the ticket, and they couldn't have gotten more Eastern than Maine, which is where the convention found Hannibal Hamlin to be his original running mate. He had no hand in it. He wasn't there. He didn't even know what was happening at the convention until the news arrived in his hometown by telegraph. Obviously, it's a different story in 1864. It's a convention that he sort of controls, at least through his supporters, and at least one uh, person, his one of his private secretaries, said that he went up there to Baltimore, which is where the convention was held, with instructions to see to the nomination of Johnson, because by now Lincoln is the quintessential northerner, and what you'd like to get to balance it is sort of a, um, a quintessential southerner who's loyal to the Union, and there weren't too many of those. Johnson was the only senator from a seceded state who didn't go south, who stayed in the United States Senate and then became military governor of Tennessee. So yeah, evidence not clear, but if Lincoln decided to do it, I don't think it was a great idea. I mean, the idea of a Southerner is appealing and important, although Lincoln, in the end, got no votes in these states that he hoped to attract mm. in, the, in the border. Johnson was a vicious racist, well-known as a racist. I think Lincoln may have liked his sort of rags-to-riches story. He was born in a log cabin like Lincoln, um, taught himself or with his wife's help to read at, an, at a rather advanced age, probably liked the personal story, but on Inauguration Day, on the day that this great speech was read, Lincoln first went to the inaugural of Andrew Johnson. In those days, they were separate. Johnson was sworn in in the Senate chamber inside the Capitol, and Lincoln sat in the first row, and Johnson was sort of raving. He either was drunk, which would not have been terribly unusual for him, or was over-medicated, whatever that means in 1865, because he had a bad cold. Whatever he was, he grabbed the Bible out of the justice's hand. He kissed it very elaborately. He held it up in the air. He said things that didn't make much sense, and his speech was slurred. And Lincoln said, take Johnson outside. He whispered to someone, take Johnson outside and make sure he doesn't speak again. And there's no evidence that Lincoln ever saw Johnson after that day, by the way. Interesting. Ignored. Much like yeah, Lincoln was, I mean, Lincoln was a teetotaler, so he couldn't have been too thrilled to see, not that these guys have any sense of their own mortality. I mean, Lincoln is not aware of any danger. He doesn't believe assassination is in the American character, he tells someone. He's standing up there in front of thirty or 40,000 people. They didn't go through a maglev metal detector. Mm. Um, John Wilkes Booth was standing on the pediment right above him. He could have shot him from right there that day. Um, if he, you know, it would have been not as close range as he had uh, five weeks later, but he was in very good shape to do. And, and Booth was a guy who wanted to be on the grand stage. So he was exposed to danger, but he didn't think about that. Hence, we got four years of Andrew Johnson. Now, one last thing before we go to hear the speech. That is, what's remarkable about Lincoln, of course, is that he wrote his own stuff. It is remarkable, isn't it? Complete with all of his funny spellings. You know, Lincoln, I shouldn't start with this, but just to get it out of the way, 
he um, there are some words that he could never spell, consistently misspelled in all of his texts from, you know, 30 years. And one of the words he didn't spell correctly was inaugural, which I find very funny. He spelled it with an E instead of a, a second U, so it, it must have been the way he said it and heard it. Inaugural, not inaugural. So, you know, he had that Western accent, and that's the way he did it. But he was a remarkable writer. I mean, I don't know where that gift comes from, from his background or from his reading. Other people read more widely, studied more deeply, but nobody wrote the way Abraham Lincoln wrote. And he sat down and wrote this, and then he had a typeset so he could read it from a manuscript version, just a few scribbles. He was so good an editor of his own work that the famous ending, Peace Among Ourselves, and with, I can't remember what the original, I think, oh yes, it originally ended, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and a lasting peace among ourselves and with the world. And Lincoln looked at it and said, it doesn't quite balance right, so he changed it to a just and a lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. It just It's a slight change, but the balance, it creates an even meter, as if he's writing poetry and you know, he really is, in a way. You could take this whole speech and put it out in free verse, and it would read as poetry. You're listening to The Power of Words, a co-production of WAMC and the New York State Archives Partnership Trust. I'm Alan Chartok, and we're here with renowned author and historian Harold Holzer. Now that we've set the scene, Academy Award-winning actor F. Murray Abraham is ready to deliver President Lincoln's second inaugural address. Let's listen. Fellow countrymen, at this second appearing to take the oath of the presidential office, there is less occasion for an extended address than there was at the first. Then a statement somewhat in detail of a course to be pursued seemed fitting and proper. Now, at the expiration of four years, during which public declarations have been constantly called forth on every point and phase of the great contest which still absorbs the attention and engrosses the energies of the nation, little that is new could be presented. The progress of our arms upon which all else chiefly depends is as well known to the public as to myself. And it is, I trust, reasonably satisfactory and encouraging to all. With high hope for the future, no prediction in regard to it is ventured. On the occasion corresponding to this four years ago, all thoughts were anxiously directed to an impending civil war. All dreaded it, all sought to avert it. While the inaugural address was being delivered from this place, devoted altogether to saving the Union without war, urgent agents were in the city seeking to destroy it without war, seeking to dissolve the Union and divide effects by negotiation. Both parties deprecated war, but one of them would make war rather than let the nation survive, and the other would accept war rather than let it perish. And the war came. One-eighth of the whole population were colored slaves not distributed generally over the Union, but localized in the southern part of it. These slaves constituted a peculiar and powerful interest. All knew that this interest was somehow the cause of the war. To strengthen, perpetuate, and extend this interest was the object for which the insurgents would rend the Union, even by war. 
while the government claimed no right to do more than to restrict the territorial enlargement of it. Neither party expected for the war the magnitude or the duration which it has already attained. Neither anticipated that the cause of the conflict might cease, with or even before the conflict itself should cease. Each looked for an easier triumph, and a result less fundamental and astounding. Both read the same Bible and pray to the same God, and each invokes his aid against the other. It may seem strange that any men should dare to ask a just God's assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of other men's faces, but let us judge not, that we be not judged. The prayers of both could not be answered. That of neither has been answered fully. The Almighty has his own purposes. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. If we shall suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses which, in the providence of God, must needs come, but which, having continued through his appointed time, he now wills to remove, and that he gives to both North and South this terrible war as the woe due to those by whom the offense came, shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which the believers in a living God always ascribe to him? Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet, if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with a lash shall be paid by another drawn with a sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. That was Academy Award winner F. Murray Abraham delivering President Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address, which Lincoln presented on March 4, 1865. Hi, I'm Alan Shartok, and you're listening to a very special Power of Words, a co-production of WAMC and the New York State Archives Partnership Trust, with us now to continue our discussion is renowned author and historian Harold Holzer. So, Harold, thanks for being here, number one, and let's talk about the speech for a minute. Obviously, it's very short. Was that by design? You know, Lincoln had made his reputation as a performer of stemwinder speeches that went on for hours. He was famous for it in the West. Something changed when he left Illinois for Washington, and he gave a magisterial but very brief farewell address that was lauded by almost everyone in the country as just a piece of prose poetry of the highest order. And from that point on, since he really didn't believe that presidents ought to speak at all, except at inaugural addresses, 
He generally kept his remarks very brief. Still, this second inaugural was about one-third or one-fourth of the length of his first inaugural. And um, I think, A, he was tired, you know, physically tired, frail. And I think he felt that in the midst of war, it was almost like FDR's fourth inaugural, very brief, that he should spare the country a, a great lengthy oration, but he sure packed a wallop in 750 words. You uh, mentioned before we heard the speech that John Wilkes Booth was in the audience. What do you make of that? He was a stalker. Actually, I uncovered, unfortunately, after I wrote about this incident, a recollection that someone had seen Booth in the Capitol Rotunda as Lincoln walked in to go to the Andrew Johnson inaugural that preceded his own, and that Booth looked at Lincoln with such wild-eyed something, you know, hatred or some kind of emotion that they thought was disturbing that he was almost detained or questioned on the spot. But because everything was moving so quickly and Lincoln was moving into the Senate side, nobody stopped him. You know, John Wilkes Booth was a very, very famous person in his day. He gained access, after all, to Lincoln's box at Ford's Theater by presenting his card to the doorkeeper. Oh, it's you know, it's like Brad Pitt mm. appearing at the White House, with apologies to Brad Pitt. But, you know, he was famous, and he was he comes there with the owner of Ford's Theater, which he did, and asks to be in the audience, uh, he not only gets to be in the audience, he gets to be in the VIP section. Not surprising. A little scary, though. Would Abraham Lincoln have meant as much to this country if he had lived out his second term? You know, it's a good question. I guess the obvious answer is probably not. Certainly martyrdom around the time of Easter Sunday and Passover, by the way, created for him an immediate reputation as both a latter-day Jesus who died for his country's sins and a latter-day Moses who brought people to the promised land but didn't quite see the entrance into mm. the promised land. And that's a powerful bit of religious parallelism in a deeply religious country. The funerals that took place, you know, just a few weeks after this speech was given in Washington, Baltimore, Philadelphia, New York City, Albany, Buffalo and then West galvanized people into, you know, masses of mourners. Lincoln's body was on full view, you know, in open coffins. I think it just, it was the most transfixing mass event and mass mourning that had ever taken place in the country. It's hard to believe that all of the politics that he would have faced, all of the congressional difficulties, all of the problems with enfranchising blacks and with resistance in the South would have made his reputation greater. But people who study Lincoln would still have loved to have seen him try it, obviously. Harold Holzer, as the top Lincoln scholar that we know of, you have heard a lot of people deliver the second inaugural address. And I guess I'm wondering what observations you have about what you've heard from the famous ones and what must have really been going on. Well, what all actors invariably do, and I've, in addition to Mr. Abraham's version, which is remarkable. I've heard Sam Waterston. I, I did it with him on stage, and Liam Neeson and Richard Dreyfus. Those are the three I've performed it with, and I guess I've heard others do it as well, or parts of it, including Hal Holbrook in the Carl Sandburg series and uh, others. What they tend to do is when the camera moves in closely or the microphone is at their lips, they intone it very softly, like the prayer it reads as. But Abraham Lincoln did this speech 
in front of tens of thousands of people who without any amplification. So he would have had to speak it very, very loudly. Uh, he also spoke very, very slowly, probably to make his words understood in those vast crowds. He also had about 250 people behind him. I don't know if they ever heard anything. I don't know which way the wind was blowing. But that was a tough task. So what F. Murray Abraham can accomplish in four or five minutes took Lincoln, by all reckoning, about 10 minutes to do. A lot of deep breathing, a lot of slow talking, a slow shouting. So it's hard to imagine. I would love to hear an actor do this outdoors without a microphone and see how it sounded, because that would get us very close to what the public heard. So how could 10,000 people, you know, I got a small theater events and somebody in the back always yells out louder, please. <laughs> how could, <laughs> could 10,000 people have possibly, you know, heard it? First of all, I'm sure someone in the back probably yelled louder, please. You know, there was a report from the first inaugural address that when Lincoln got to the podium, he took out his eyeglasses and snapped back the case, the eyeglass case, which must have been made of a, of a hard metal. And it made a loud clack that was so loud that it echoed over the plaza. So I think start with pretty good acoustics. And then the second point is this is what people were accustomed to in those days, whether it was in the theater or in the, you know, the opera or in public speeches. Lincoln had spoken to up to 15, 20,000 people during the Lincoln-Douglas debates. I'm not sure the people on the outer rim heard everything or heard a lot. I mean, I think they could say to their children and their grandchildren that they had been there, that they had seen Abraham Lincoln. But we don't know how many people heard. But we do know one thing. All these legends that Lincoln had a, whatever they say, a high-pitched voice or a difficult voice to carry cannot be true. Because if there's one thing that presidents came to their office with, well, politicians came to their jobs with, it's voices that could be heard in outdoor settings like this. You know, it was like if you couldn't lift a hammer, you weren't going to become a blacksmith. If you didn't have a, a good voice, you couldn't, you just couldn't be a politician. So just think of the modern people we've heard, the modern presidents we've heard, and you can actually calculate which presidents would have made it and which wouldn't have made it. John F. Kennedy would have made it. A good, loud tenor voice. Johnson might have made it. He had a pretty loud voice. Bill Clinton would never have made it. He had constantly had laryngitis. Nixon, maybe. Ford, maybe. Uh, Obama, probably. But you've got to have the ability to, to wave your voice over those huge crowds and let most of the narrative be heard. So, Harold Holzer, we have heard the speech now. I mean, it's always hard to know about this. One of my favorite books is Time and Again. If one little thing changed back in, you know, the 1800s, then history could be changed forever. If we take the Lincoln speech, it's a hard question to ask you, but how do you think it reverberates throughout history in terms of the shaping of the nation? I think it gave us an ideal that we probably have never achieved the idea of a society based essentially on malice toward none and charity for all. You know, there was an ethos about binding up the nation's wounds, one of those other beautiful phrases, not heal, but bind up. Lincoln always had the cadence right. I keep going back to that because it's so remarkable. Lincoln always wrote his speeches for a hearing audience. He was very conscious of balancing of phrases, of repeated sounds, of the number of beats in a sentence. But this one is a national ideal. I just think it's been misunderstood in many ways. It's best known for that final phrase. But if you look at the rest of it, it's almost an accounting of how the war started. It's, uh, 
condemnation of anyone and everyone who tolerated slavery uh, in, in, in any form. And that included Abraham Lincoln, who, after all, came to the office of the presidency committed only to preventing the extension of slavery and not to eradicating it where it existed. So it's a lot of mea culpa and al hate in there, too. Talk to me about Lincoln's reputation among historians, or some historians, as being a bit of a depressive and morose. Is that true? I think he was melancholy. Uh, my friend Joshua Wolf Shank wrote a book called Lincoln's Melancholy, argues that he was a classic depressive, that he was a, you know, a clinically depressed personality, that he overreacted to death, uh, for example, certainly not to the 600,000 soldiers, but, you know... My argument has always been that anyone who is responsible, in a sense, for with the, with the mere signature, with his mere you know authorization for the deaths of you know a generation of people, six hundred thousand is like fifteen or twenty million casualties today in a war. It was unfathomable. It touched every family in the United States, in some way, mother, you know, brother, father, son. How could you not be melancholy going to the telegraph office day after day and seeing? You know, 300 people died today in battles that we've never even heard of now, let alone, you know, 20,000 at Gettysburg. So the melancholy is understandable. I did a probably too glib a piece in the Washington Post. They asked me to write five myths that you would, you know, like to contradict about Abraham Lincoln. And one of them I did was um, Lincoln is depressed. And I said, Lincoln was a depressed personality. I said, this is a new mantra. But I don't think it's possible that Lincoln could have achieved the kind of work he did, just the, the hours of intense work, because most of the depressed people I've known, you know, just sort of have paralysis about their their day-to-day activities, at least in some point. And Lincoln never took to his bed. He never shut the world out. And he produced on a level of, mm. of that was unheard of. Well, so I wrote this. I got the most unbelievable emails from people, most of whom said that they thought I was an idiot, but we'll leave that aside. <laughs> but they weren't just four-line, go-to-hell kind of emails. They were long, long discussions, all from people suffering from depression, hmm. about how wrong I was, how they worked all their lives, how they take out their agonies. You know, they cry on their pillows and they get up the next day. It was very, very moving. And then my friend Josh Shank called me and said I was an idiot, too. So I don't know. It's a tough question. <laughs> and the jury is out, and we'll never know for sure, but he was a sensitive man, our Mr. Lincoln, and uh, if he did not feel the pain of all the deaths that his resistance to secession eventually caused, then he could not have really been human, I guess. Well, Harold, the reason I ask you the question is because I wonder if that's true, if he was melancholy, and if he bore all of that responsibility, you could see that personal melancholy coming out in the speech. The speech is dripping with sadness. The hope flickers only at the end. This is all about punishment for sin, and it's about retribution, and it's about people who plotted at the beginning when he was offering an olive branch four years earlier. It's really sort of a fire and brimstone preacher's lecture in a way, um, just ending with with a ray of hope. It's very deeply religious and uh, devotional, but it still gives people hope at the end, which I think is the, is the magic of it, is that shift in mood which is uh, what makes the speech so memorable, even if just the happy mood and the hopeful mood is what's always recounted. Now, you attribute the melancholy to just having signed, you know, the paper that started it all. But what about the very difficult wife at home? 
Yeah, well, you know, it's been reported, you know, he, he lost his mother at an early age. And, you know, with all due respect to anyone who's endured that, the fact is that people died with greater frequency on the prairie. People had 10 children because they expected to lose three. The Lincolns had four and lost two. Of course, that's horrible and would kill anybody emotionally, but it was not unusual. He lost a girlfriend in New Salem, uh, that kind of thing, but it happened. <laughs> there was no cure for these diseases, and his own son died from drinking the water in the White House. So a different time. I, you know, I don't shortchange it. A person of sensitivity is obviously going to react to his environment and to the family losses, and uh, Lincoln clearly felt them more deeply than most and was able to articulate them more keenly than others. So that's why we, we understand it and know it so well. But I wanted to refer specifically to his wife. Oh, and I thought I, you said his life. No, no. Uh, oh, that's okay. Go ahead. His yeah. wife. Well, she was suffering from increasing instability over the years. She took her losses very hard. She'd lost a father. She'd, you know, endured a stepmother, having seven or eight more children in the house. And you know, what mother wouldn't feel the loss of a two-year-old and then an 11-year-old. But, you know, we forget that Abraham Lincoln found a lot in common with Mary when they were courting. And um, we don't know that part of the marriage. All we know is things like they love poetry. They believed in very lenient child-rearing. They love politics. These are things they could talk about at night, not just the family. She was a smart woman. She was an educated woman. She went to college very unusual for women in those days. She actually spoke enough French so that Senator Charles Sumner would sort of painstakingly converse with her in French, even though other people made fun of her for her accent. I just find it interesting that, and I think this is a problem that's plagued a lot of male historians over mm -hmm. the past. If you, read, if you read male historians' accounts of the marriage, they're quite different than the ones written by women like Jean Baker, for example, and Catherine Clinton, who were much more sympathetic. When Betty Ford suffered from both breast cancer and then admitted, you know, overindulgence with alcohol and, and medication and went to the clinic that ultimately bore her name, there was no anger. I mean, nobody said, this is outrageous that Gerald Ford should have to deal with such a woman when he retreats to the private quarters of the White House. We hate Betty Ford. She will go down in history as one of the worst first ladies because of her illness and her problems. And yet for Mary, who had an emotional illness that was every bit as viable and physical as cancer, we revile her, or many male historians revile her, and history generally reviles her as someone who made Lincoln's life a hell. Well, you know, that's life. If you get married, you, you know, in the days before divorce and separation, you deal with it. And that's what Lincoln was called upon to do, and why shouldn't he? It's not all her responsibility. That's the way I see it. I didn't work for Bella Abzug for nothing, Alan. <laughs> so... Abraham Lincoln is continually seen as the best president in history of the United States. Yeah, every once in a while there's a little blip in the radar. But Lincoln right. always comes out first, not Washington. How come? Well, he died for our sins, he freed the slaves, and he saved the Union in a nutshell. I mean, we can argue around the edges of all those reputation-building accomplishments, but that's basically the spiel on Lincoln. I will say that he is losing ground in the popular mind. For one reason, you know, history is taught so casually and so, you know, if at all, in the public schools today that I think people are getting more social history than they are history history. And I think what we learned as kids about the Civil War and about Lincoln is being supplanted by some curriculum that barely mentions it or him. So who is he losing ground to? Well, I'll tell you a quick story. 
I was asked to be on a TV show to judge the greatest Americans. And you went on like it was like a game show with little audiences and you would argue your case and the other audiences would boo you. So I was the arguer for Lincoln in the semifinals and I won beating Benjamin Franklin and George Washington. And it was a TV show where people were voting. You know, it was like American Idol. But I was replaced <laughs> immediately after my performance. So Doris Kearns Goodwin carried the Lincoln flag for the finals. All I can say is I love Doris, but maybe they shouldn't have replaced me because Doris lost. And after the final vote, Lincoln had been reduced to the second greatest president, and the winner was Ronald Reagan. And I remember I was watching the show, you know, furious that I'd been thrown off the series. And they put Reagan's son on the air, Ron Reagan. And they said, Ron, we just want to tell you that your father has just defeated Abraham Lincoln as the most popular American in our history. And he said, you're kidding, right? <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> so, yeah, the presidents who are on film and on video and on the web moving around and talking are much stronger in the popular mind now. So Reagan and John F. Kennedy are usually at the top these days. And Mr. Lincoln, with all of his grim, rigidly posed photographs speaking for him and people like F. Murray Abraham doing a yeoman's job, keeping those words alive is third, at least in the popular polls. Well, that's just wrong. What can we do about it? Play this F. Murray Abraham speech again and again. It deserves it. So I guess what I want to know is, why were you replaced on that show? <laughs> You'll have to ask MSNBC. It was humiliating. I thought I did pretty well. But, well, Doris is a big, big name. and she, But she, she now has to bear the mantle of the person who lost Lincoln's number one status. When you walk into the Lincoln Memorial, you get the majesty of this address on the wall. I wonder how many people stop and read it through. I make it an effort to go to the Lincoln Memorial almost every time I'm in Washington. And at this point, I take my quick glance at the statue, which I, is so magnificent. But I spend most of my time watching other people interact with what they're seeing. I watch people taking pictures of themselves with the statue. You know, they could buy a postcard, but they want to be there with the statue. And I watch people lining up to read the Gettysburg Address and the Second Inaugural. They're not easy to read because instead of sentences the way Lincoln did them, they're, the sentences are, they all run together. And there's just a little mm. you know, a dingbat between sentences rather than a period. So it's a struggle. The Lincoln Bicentennial Commission did, by the way, pay to have the stenciling work redone. It had all but vanished over the years. But I do see people reading it and working their way through the difficult part until they get to with malice toward none, which most people recognize. And it's pretty exciting to watch the commitment to text that still prevails in an age that doesn't respect text, I fear, as much as it once did. I think this one still works and still attracts people. But of all the memorials, I mean, I'm with you 100%. You know, I can't be down there without going up there. And it's, it is truly, you've talked about the relationship to religion. It is truly a holy place. You know, I don't feel that about the Jefferson <laughs> You know, I know, the rest of them. And what does it say around this building as it discusses, you know, what it is around the permit? It says, in this temple, as in the hearts of the people for whom he saved the Union, the memory of Abraham Lincoln is enshrined forever. They knew what they were building. They were building a temple, a shrine, a place, you know, where Lincoln sort of ascends. It is a very deeply moving place, even if its dedication in the 1920s reflected all the problems that we had not solved up until that time, despite Lincoln's example. You know, it turned out to be a segregated event where black people were rather unceremoniously pushed to the back by mounted policemen. Pretty mm -hmm. ugly scene. 
Yes, but and yet some of the great famous gatherings of all times have been right there at the Lincoln Memorial, I'm sure for good reason. Absolutely, and it's an amazing thing that it has taken its place not just as a as a memorial to Lincoln, but as a public arena for for freedom of expression of all kinds. It's a, it's an amazing thing. We also paid uh, the commission did to restencil the marker on the steps that identifies the place where Dr. King stood to give this "I Have a Dream" speech, which was of course completely obliterated by people lovingly standing over it and posing there as well. Harold Holzer, we only have time for one more question, and that is this. You've really dedicated your life to this guy. Your life by no means is over, but you've done a service to the American people. You've been honored for it. Do you ever feel that there was any other historical figure you should have spent more time on, or are you satisfied with having become the preeminent Lincoln scholar? Well, I don't know if I'm the preeminent one. Yes, You're you too are. kind. No, I'm very satisfied. It, it happened to me... You know, it was sort of a bolt from the blue. It originated from a grade school assignment in the days when, I hope those days still exist for kids, when when you have a great teacher and she stimulates you to be interested in something and just pulling a name out of a hat and being ordered up to the library and finding the right book at the right time. Within your listening audience is a man named Richard Nelson Current, who is about 99 years old, not well, but still with us, and he wrote the book the Lincoln Nobody Knows that intrigued me when I was 12 years old and kept me going, and I've never regretted a minute of it. I just wish that more people would focus on some part of our past because, and I'm talking about young people, school syllabus materials, because it's sort of to turn the the classic phrase, there's no way to chart the path to the future without understanding the past. Unfortunately, we are out of time. I want to thank our distinguished guests who are both phenomenal today renowned historian and author Harold Holzer, and Academy Award-winning actor F. Murray Abraham. Thanks also to our producer, David Gustina. Special thanks to Bob Bullock from the New York State Archives Partnership Trust. Be sure to join us next time for another discussion about a great political speech on the power of words. been listening to an encore airing of The Power of Words, President Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address, with our Alan Shartalk interviewing renowned Lincoln historian Harold Holzer and Academy Award-winning actor F. Murray Abraham delivering the speech. To listen again or find out more about the series, just head to wamc.org, where you can podcast anytime. Thanks for listening. <laughs>